Audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment and audiobooks, ranging from bestsellers to celebrity memoirs, news, business, and self-development. Every month, members get one credit to pick any title, plus two Audible originals from a monthly selection, and access to daily news digests from the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post, as well as guided meditation programs. Between a full-time job in IT and a full-time job in podcasting, it gets harder and harder to sit down and read the books I'm interested in. This is where Audible comes in. I can listen on my daily commute, relaxing, or while out running errands and still get in the books I've been wanting to get into. You can download titles and listen offline anytime, anywhere. The app is free and can be installed on all smartphones and tablets. Now you can try Audible risk-free with a special 30-day free trial by visiting audibletrial.com forward slash nerdery and murdery. That's audibletrial.com forward slash nerdery and murdery. Don't let your busy life get in the way of that great book you've been wanting to read. Go get your free trial of Audible today. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. This is Jeffrey, and we've talked about many times before that I experience problems and struggles with my mental health. And really, without a healthy mind, being truly happy and at peace is hard. The good news is therapy does work. It's helped for me. But but what is is therapy exactly? It's it's whatever you want it to be. Maybe you're not feeling motivated right now and would like some tools to help. Or maybe you're feeling insecure in relationships at work or you're not dealing well with stress. Whatever you need, it's really time to stop being ashamed of normal human struggles. And, and it's time to start feeling better because you deserve to be happy. And now you don't have to worry about finding an in-person therapist near you to help. BetterHelp is a customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. So join the millions of people who are seeing what online therapy is really about. It's always a good time to invest in yourself because you are your greatest asset. And there's a special offer to Nerdery and Murdery listeners. You can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com slash nerderyandmurdery. That's betterhelp.com forward slash nerderyandmurdery. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this podcast. You're listening to the sweet and sensual sounds of Nerdery and Murdery. Seriously, you're an idiot. Welcome to episode 54 of Nerdery and Murdery. I'm Zig with your Nerdery. And I'm Jeffrey with your Murdery. A couple things before we start. One to congratulate William for buying some dirt. Bought some dirt. Going to get him a nice nice new built house. So congratulations to William on that. Uh, We had a couple of shout outs. Zig, I'll let you start off. I'd like to shout out Jim150 up in Azel Boyd in the Springtown area. They are a gymnastics gym. That's Texas, by the way. Yes, in Texas. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, It's also, they're a great little gymnastics gym. Um, 
Audra and Ray who run it are just incredible people. As a matter of fact, Ray is also a contractor and he's working on some, a project on the back of my house and they're great. However, um, they thought our podcast was called Nerdery and Birdery. <laughs> they were they were waiting for the bird portion <laughs> of the show. So at some point, I'm going to do a nerdery on on birds because I think that's just funny. That's hysterical. Well, on uh, on my shout out, I wanted to give a shout out to Geek Girl Authority. You can find uh, her at geekgirlauthority.com, and she gave a great review of the show. And I was just going to read a, a one little s- snippet of it because I thought it was funny. Uh, this is Lauren Darnell, who is the author of the site. She is also an accomplished author herself as well. But do check her out at Geek Girl Authority. And, and here's the snippet I wanted to read. Zing br- Zig brings the nerdery to the table. A lifelong proclaimed nerd himself, Zig talks about a new nerdy topic every week. So far in the episode, Zig and Jeff have discussed everything from their favorite coin-operated arcade games to old British TV sitcoms. This section of the podcast is always first to lull the listener into a false sense of security before the depravity of the true crime segment starts. (laughs) I thought that was great. The review itself was really awesome. Appreciate Lauren for that. Yes. Uh, Check out her, her website. She's got a great, great, great site. So. And she is an accomplished children's author. The day it rained iguanas, and the day the sea the, turtles. The day the, the the day the sea turtles froze. I yes. think it's one. It's it's something like that. I actually I have the books. So. Yeah, me too. Uh, so check her out. Uh, the review for us came out on April thirteenth. So you can check that out again on geekgirlauthority.com. So thank you, thank you again, Lauren, for that. Cause it was such a great article. Much love, baby Silvertooth, from yep. your aunt Bicky. <laughs> so uh, with that, I'll let Zig take over the nerdy side of the house. Well, awesome. Today we're going to do a deep dive on a director. The director is David Lynch, and we already did some of him where we did Twin Peaks way back in episode. Two episode three? two, episode two or three, two, yeah, I think it was three, three, was yeah, it? Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, so I, I kind of wanted to do a little deeper dive on David Lynch himself, um, just because I, I, I loved everything I've ever seen him do. Um, you know, he even did a sitcom after Twin Peaks, really, it's called On the Air, it was about a 1950s TV, uh, TV show, huh. Yeah, it's it's really it's hard to find, but it's pretty funny. We were both wrong. It was episode three. Was it episode three? Yep. Uh, David Keith Lynch was born January twentieth, nineteen forty six. He's an American filmmaker, painter, visual artist, musician, and a writer. A recipient of Academy Honorary Award in twenty nineteen, Lynch was received has received three Academy Award nominations for Best Director and the Cesar Award for Best Foreign Film twice, as well as the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival and the Golden Lion Award for a Lifetime Achievement at the Venice Film Festival. In 2007, a panel of critics convened by The Guardian uh, announced that after all the discussion, no one could fault the conclusion that David Lynch is the most important filmmaker of the current era. Wow. Yeah, um... While all movies called him the Renaissance man of modern American filmmaking, his working led him to being labeled the first populist surrealist filmmaker. 
Now, Lynch studied painting uh, before he began making short films in the late 60s. His first feature-length film, the surrealist Eraserhead, became a success on the midnight movie circuit, and he followed that by directing The Elephant Man uh, in 1980, uh, Dune in 1984, and Blue Velvet in 1986. Lynch next created his own television series with Mark Frost, uh, The Murder Mystery Twin Peaks, which we've discussed before. Uh, between 1990 and 1991, which ran, it ran for two seasons. He also made the film prequel, uh, Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, in 1992, the road film Wild at Heart in 1990, and the family film The Straight Story in 1999. Uh, in the same period, turning uh, further towards surrealist f- filmmaking, three of his subsequent films operated on dream logic, non-linear narrative structures, Lost Highway in 1997, Mulholland Drive in 2001, and Inland Empire in 2006. Lynch and Frost reunited in 2017 for the third season of Twin Peaks, which aired on Showtime. Lynch co-wrote and directed every episode uh, and reprised his on-screen role as Gordon Cole, the deaf FBI uh, director. Uh, Lynch's other artistic endeavors, including his work as a musician, encompassing the studio albums Blue Bob, Crazy Crazy Clown Time, and The Big Dream. I guess that's why he was so much into the indie music that they put at the end of every episode on Showtime? Yep. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, well, I, that and, you know, he's an accomplished musician and, and an artist. And, and pe- weirdo little indie guys like to work with him, you know, because he's such a straight shooter. He's, well, that, and that was one of the things about the the Showtime series that was, I don't know, just just very odd is yeah. is and, and we talked about it in the original episode is that bar scene at the end that's not really connected to anything. No, is just there as an afterthought. Yeah, well, and there are two episodes where like there's a fight in the bar with the guy with the giant hand or with the right, yeah. right. But but for most of them, they're really not connected no. to anything else they in just, the story. They're all hanging out at the bar, they're talking, and then they. Go to music. Go to music. Cue the music, as it were. And he's also works a lot uh, with sound design uh, for a variety of his films, sometimes alongside collaborators Alan Split, Dean Hurley, and Angelo Badalamenti. Painting and photography, writing uh, books of images, catching, Catching the Big Fish, and Room to Dream and numerous other literary works, and directed several music videos, such as uh, the video for Shot in the Back of the Head by Moby, who in turn directed a video for Lynch's The Big Dream, uh, as well as advertisements, including the Dior promotion film, a promotional film, Lady Blue Shanghai. An avid practitioner of transcendental meditation, in 2005 he founded the David Lynch Foundation, which seeks to fund the teachings of transcendental meditation in schools, and has since widened its scope to other at-risk populations, including the homeless, veterans, and refugees. He began his studies at uh, Corcoran School of Art and Design in Washington, D.C., before transferring in 1964 to the School of the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, where he was roommates with musician Peter Wolf, who David Lynch kicked out of the apartment because he was too weird. Huh? Peter Wolf of uh, the Jay Giles Band, the lead singer. Um, how weird do you have to be? <laughs> how many drugs do you have to do to get kicked out of the Allman Brothers? Right? 
<laughs> he left after a year at that school saying, I was not inspired at all in that place. And instead, decided he wanted to travel around Europe for three years with his friend Jack Fisk. Uh, he was similarly unhappy with his studies at Cooper Union. They had some hopes that they could train in Europe with Austrian expressionist painter Oskar uh, Kokoschka at his school. Upon reaching uh, Salzburg, however, they found that Kokoschka was not available. Disillusioned, they returned to the United States, and after spending only two weeks in Europe, uh, back in the U.S., Lynch returned to Virginia, but since his parents had moved to Walnut Creek, California, he stayed with his friend Toby Keeler. Uh, he decided to move to Philadelphia and enroll at the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts after advice from Fisk, who was already enrolled there. He preferred this college to his previous school in Boston, saying in Philadelphia there was a great and uh, serious, uh, serious painters and everybody was inspired by one another, and it was a beautiful time there. It was here that he began a relationship with a fellow student, Peggy Reevy, whom he married in 1967. The following year, Peggy gave birth uh, to their daughter, Jennifer. Peggy later said, uh, David definitely was a reluctant father, but a very loving one. Um, she said when she was pregnant, they got married, and they were both reluctant uh, to start a family. But as a family, they moved to Philadelphia's Fairmont neighborhood, where they bought a 12-room house for a re relatively low price of $3,500 due to the area's high crime and poverty rates. I have seen pictures of this house. It is very, very run down, but they basically redid it themselves. Meanwhile, to help support the family, he took a job uh, uh, at printing engravings at the Pennsylvania Academy. Lynch made his first short film, Six Men Getting Sick, uh, in 1967. Uh, he'd come up with the idea while he developed a wish to see his paintings move. So he began discussing doing animation with an artist named uh, Bruce Samuelson, who then <clears throat> but that project never came about. Lynch decided to work on a film alone and purchased the cheapest 16mm camera that he could find. Uh, taking one of the Academy's abandoned upper rooms as a workspace, he spent $150, which at the time he felt was a lot of money, uh, to pr produce Six Men Getting Sick, calling the film 57 Seconds of Growth and Fire and 3 Seconds of Vomit. <laughs> Lynch played it on a loop at the Academy's annual end-of-the-year exhibit, where it shared joint first prize with a painting by Noel uh, Mahaffey. Uh, this led to a commission from his fellow students, the wealthy H. Barton Wasserman, who offered him $1,000 to create a film installation in his home. He spent $478 on that uh, on a second-hand second handheld Bolex camera uh, that was the camera of his dreams. Uh, Lynch produced a new animated short, but upon getting the film developed, realized that the result was blurred, frameless print, he later said. So I called up Wasserman and said, Bart, the film is a disaster. The camera was broken, and what I've done hasn't turned out. And he said, don't worry, David. Take the rest of the money and make something else for me. Just give me a print. End of story. Um, and, and when I speak as David Lynch, I'm going to try to speak in his voice. It's not great, but he's very... The character of Golden or Gordon Cole, that's how David Lynch talks. It's not yelling or loud, mm -hmm. but that very Midwestern, matter-of-fact speech is how David Lynch talks to everybody, which is why everybody loves him, because he's very kind, uh, he's very friendly, he's also very direct and funny. At the same time. And it's just basically because of the manner of his speech. Well, that character was very funny, too. I yeah. mean, I never understood why he had to make him deaf, but... 
mentioned. Or near death, but yeah, it, it was. Because it was funny to Lynch. Lynch thought it was funny that he is a, an investigator who doesn't hear very well. Mm-hmm. He was like, either he was either we're going to make him not be able to hear very well or see very well, but uh, making him not hear very well came off as funnier to, to Lynch. Mm-hmm. Very funny character. Yeah. But yeah, that 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 basically is David Lynch, only not shouting. Um, so with the leftover money, Lynch decided to experiment with a mix of animation and live action, producing the four-minute short, The Alphabet. This film starred Lynch's wife, Peggy, as a character known as The Girl, who chants the alphabet to a series of images of horses before dying at the end by hemorrhaging blood all over her bedsheets. My God. Adding a sound effect, Lynch used a broken uh, Ewer tape recorder to record the sound of Jennifer crying, creating a distorted sound that Lynch found particularly effective. Later describing what he had inspired, Lynch said Peggy's niece was having a bad dream one night, and she, and she was saying the alphabet in her sleep um, in a tormented way. So that sort of what got this idea rolling the rest of it was just subconscious uh learning of the newly found a uh, founded american film institute afi which gave grants to filmmakers who could support their applications with a prior work and a script for a new project lynch decided to send them a copy of the alphabet along with a script he had written for a new short film that would be almost entirely live action the grandmother the Institute agreed to help finance the work, initially offering him $5,000 out of his requested budget of $7,200, but later granting him an additional $2,200. Starring people he knew from both work and college, and he filmed it in the house. The grandmother featured a neglected boy who grows a grandmother from a seed to care for him. Uh, the film critic Michael LeBlanc and Colin O'Dell wrote, The film is a true oddity, but c- contains many of the themes and ideas that would filter into his later work. And shows a more remarkable grasp of the medium. <clears throat> now, in 1971, Lynch moved with his wife and daughter to Los Angeles, where he began studying filmmaking at the AFI Conservatory, a place he later called completely chaotic and disorganized, which was great. Uh, you quickly learned that you were going to get something done. You would have to do it yourself. Uh, they wanted to let people do their thing, and he began writing a script for a proposed work, um, Garden Back. Uh, that had unfolded from the paintings that he had done. In this venture, he was supported by a number of figures from the conservatory who encouraged him to lengthen the script and add more dialogue, which he reluctantly agreed to do. All of the interference from his garden back project made him fed up with the conservatory and led him to quit after returning to start his second year and being put in a first-year class. AFI Dean Frank Daniel asked Lynch to reconsider, believing he was one of the school's best students. Lynch agreed on the condition that he could create a project that would be would not be interfered with, feeling that Gardenbeck was wrecked, which he then set out to start his next piece, which was Eraserhead. Eraserhead was uh, planned to only be about 42 minutes long, and it ended up being 89 minutes long. Its script was only 21 pages, and Lynch was able to create the film uh, without interference. Fullman began on May 29, 1972, at night in some abandoned uh, horse stables. That allowed the production team, which would uh, large, which was largely Lynch and his friends, including Sissy Spacek, Jack Fisher, cinematographer Frederick Elms, and sound designer Adam Splett, who set up a camera room, green room, editing room, and sets, as well as uh, the food room and a bathroom. The AFI gave Lynch a $10,000 grant, but it was not enough to complete the film. And under pressure from studios after the success of the relatively cheaply made 
easy rider, uh, they were unable to give him more. So Lynch was then supported by a loan from his father and money that he earned from a paper route that he took up delivering the Wall Street Journal uh, just to make some extra money around oh, the wow. house. Yeah. Not long into Eraserhead's production, Lynch and Peggy amicably separated and divorced, and he began living full-time on the set. In 1977, Lynch married Mary Fisk, sister of Jack Fisk. Lynch has said that he, uh, not a single reviewer of the film understood it in the way he intended. Filmed in black and white, Eraserhead tells the story of Henry, Jack Nance, who you know he used in everything, right. as a quiet young man living in a dystopian industrial wasteland whose girlfriend gives birth to a deformed baby whom she leaves in his care. It was heavily influenced by the fearful mood of Philadelphia and Lynch had calling it my Philadelphia story. Due to financial problems, the filming of a racer head was haphazard, regularly stopping and starting again. It was on one such break in 1974 that Lynch created the short film, the amputee, a one shot film about two minutes long. Lynch proposed that he make the amputee to present to AFI to test two different types of film stock. Eraserhead was finally finished in 1976, so it took him five years to make it, because uh, he started in 71. Lynch tried to get it entered into the Cannes Film Festival, but while some reviewers liked it, others felt it was awful, and it was not selected for screening. Reviewers from the New York Film Festival also rejected it, but it was screened at the Los Angeles Film Festival, where Ben Barinholtz, the distributor for Elgin Theater, heard about it. And he was very supportive of the movie, helping to distribute it around the United States in 1977. And Eraserhead subsequently became popular on the Midnight Movie Underground Circuit and was later called one of the most important Midnight Movies of the 1970s, along with El Topo, Pink Flamingos, the Rocky Horror Picture Show, mm -hmm. The Harder They Come, The Night of the Living Dead. And Stanley Kubrick said it was one of his all-time favorite oh, wow. films. Yeah. Yeah, and I didn't know he was friends with Sissy Spacek. Good, good endorsement from Kubrick. Yeah, man. no kidding. Um, uh, the next endorsement will surprise you as well. After a racerhead success on the underground stir a circuit, Stuart Cornfield, an executive producer for Mel Brooks, uh, saw it and later said it was he was just 100% blown away. He thought it was the greatest thing he'd ever seen. It was such a cleansing experience. He agreed to help Lynch with his next film, Ronnie Rocket, uh, for which Lynch had already been... Uh, written a script, but Lynch soon realized that Ronnie Rocket, a film that he said was about electricity and a three-foot guy with red hair, uh, was not going to be picked up by any financiers. So he asked Cornfield to find a script by someone else that he could direct. Cornfield found four. On hearing the title of the first, Lynch chose it. That was The Elephant Man. And I did not know this. Mel Brooks's company produced The Elephant Man. Oh, I didn't know that either. Yeah. Uh, the Elephant Man script, wow. yeah, was written by Chris uh, Devoir. Yeah, a completely dramatic movie. Yeah. by a Mel Brooks company. That's that's why. Yeah, Mel Brooks is a can be a pretty serious guy when he needs to be. He just he prefers to work in comedy. Sure. Well, he's so good at it. <laughs> yeah, and you know he's been doing it for so long. Right. Uh, the Elephant Man script, written by Chris uh, De Devere and Eric Bergen, was based on the true story of, of Joseph Merrick. A uh, severely deformed man in Victorian London, uh, who was held in a sideshow, but later taken under the care of a London surgeon, uh, Frederick Treves. Lynch wanted to make sure uh, alterations uh, that would alter the story uh, from true events, but in the his view, make a better plot. But he needed Mel Brooks' permission, as Brooks' company, Brooks Films, was responsible for producing. Brooks viewed Eraserhead, and after coming out of the screening, 
theater, embrace Lynch, declaring, you're a madman, I love you, which is very Mel Brooks. Uh, the Elephant Man uh, starred John Hurt as John Merrick. Uh, the name was changed from Joseph. Mm-hmm. And uh, Anthony Hopkins is Trees. And again, one of the few roles that I liked Anthony Hopkins in. Because again, I think Anthony Hopkins is another one of those that just, he goes too broad. Um, like Pacino. There's no reason to be that broad. After a certain point, nothing that Pacino does, I think, is good anymore. Um, we're and we'll disagree on Anthony Hopkins. I I like Anthony Hopkins. Um, I, I really do. But some of his early work, like the and he was great in the Elephant Man. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. Um, the Elephant Man, uh, surrealistic and in black and white, has been called one of the most conventional of Lynch's films. The Elephant Man was a huge critical and commercial success, earning eight Academy Award nominations, including Best Director and Best Adapted Screenplay. Uh, after the Elephant Man's success, George Lucas, a fan of Eraserhead, offered Lynch the opportunity to direct the third film in his Star Wars trilogy. Really? Yes, he did. Return of the Jedi. Lynch refused. Thank you. And argued that Lucas... <laughs> I'm sorry. Thank you, David Lynch, for not doing Return of the Jedi. I don't know. i kind of like to see that. No. Arguing that Lucas should direct the film himself, as the movie should reflect his own vision, and not Lynch's. So, soon the opportunity to direct another big bunch at science fiction epic arose when Dino De Laurentiis and the De Laurentiis Entertainment Group asked Lynch to create a film ap- adaptation of Frank Herbert's science fiction novel, Dune. Mm-hmm. And I always say it like that because everybody in the film doesn't say Dune, they say Dune. You know, and um, I, I actually, just this week, watched the new Dune. Uh-huh. Um, it's good. It is. It's very it's good. Really good. It's really uh, good. I love that the Duncan Idaho got to do more. Because mm-hmm. David Lynch's version, Duncan Idaho, doesn't get to do right. more. Unless you saw the extended cut, which they started showing on television stations back in the late 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's the one that you can get now. You can tell it's the extended David Lynch cut because they didn't. They didn't have a chance to blue up their eyes. So when Kyle MacLachlan has brown eyes after he becomes a Fremen, if it's got those scenes in there, it's the extended cut. Plus, it's like four hours long. Well, and and I didn't mean to go too far past David Lynch, but the the one thing that bothered me about the recent Dune as well as the David Lynch Dune, and, and honestly, I'm very versed in the book in the series of books i did i actually did my junior year the term theme on dune oh good man Um, yeah what a great book to do that on yeah it was it was it was great It, it, it i mean there was so much material for me to get um but what i don't like about both movies is the whispering narration yeah I, I I wish they did the narration in in normal voices because the whispering, especially someone like me who's getting a little deaf in his old age here, it, it's harder for me to hear. And it's just I don't know. That's the whole ASMR thing, I guess. Yeah. And it's just to to me, I don't like the whispering narration. You'd rather it just be good narration. Yes, good solid narration. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I'll go with that. I I think what they were trying to go for is that was what they were thinking. So they whispered when they were thinking sure. it. No, yeah. I, I knew it what makes they were sense. Go- I knew what they were going for. It's just, yeah, you'd rather him just talk. Yes. Yeah. Right on. 
Because, you know, if their lips aren't moving, then that, you know that that's, they're thinking it right. and not saying it out loud. Right. Yeah. Or you could have put a little piece of music on it, you know, just a little sound effect mm-hmm. to, to denote it. So, yeah, I'm with you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, Lynch did agree to doing so, but was contractually obliged to produce two other works for the company. So he set about writing a script based upon the novel, initially with both Chris DeVore and Eric Bergen, and then alone when De Laurentiis was unhappy with their ideas. Lynch also helped build some of the sets, uh, attempting to create a certain look and particularly enjoyed building the sets for the oil planet Giddy Prime, for which he used steel, bolts, and porcelain. Uh, and I agree that the sets for Kitty Prime are very Lynchian, you know, with the, with the, with the little acid pit where they throw the trash and everything. Yeah. yeah. Um, Dune is set in the far future where humans live in an interstellar empire under a feudal system. The main character, Paul Atreides, played by Kyle McLaughlin, uh, is the son of a noble who takes control of the desert planet Arrakis, which grows the rare spice melange, the empire's most highly prized commodity. Lynch was unhappy with this work, later saying Dune was a kind of studio film. I didn't have the final cut, and little by little, I was subconsciously making compromises. Uh, Much of the footage was eventually removed from the final theatrical cut, dramatically condensing the plot. Although De Laurentiis hoped it would be successful as Star Wars, Dune, which was released in 1984, was a critical and commercial dud. It had cost $45 million to make and grossed $27.4 million domestically. Ouch. Later, Universal Studios released the extended cut for syndicated television, containing almost an hour of cutting room floor footage and new narration. It did not represent Lynch's intention, but the studio considered it more comprehensible than the original version. Lynch objected to the changes uh, and had his name struck from the extended cut, which had Alan Smithy credited as the director and Judas Booth, a pseudonym Lynch invented reflecting his feelings of betrayal as a screenwriter. Judas Booth. Uh, Alan Smithy is used a lot. That's a, you know, I don't want my name on it. Okay, well, then it'll be directed by Alan Smithy. Um, Meanwhile, in 1983, he'd begun writing and drawing a, a comic strip, The Angriest Dog in the World, which featured unchanging graphics for a tethered dog that was so angry that it could not move, alongside cryptic philo- philosophical references. It ran from 1983 to 1992 in The Village Voice, uh, creative lo- loafing and other tabloid and alternate publications. Around this time, Lynch also became interested in photography as an art form and traveled to northern England to photograph the degrading industrial landscape. I've seen some of those photos. They're beautiful, especially around uh, Sheffield and um, um, Manchester and Liverpool. Just stark, beautiful stuff. Lynch Lynch was contractually still obligated to produce two other films uh, for De Laurentiis. The first, a, a planned sequel to Dune, which, due to the film's failure, never went beyond the script stage. The other was a more personal work based on a script Lynch had been working on for some time, developed from the idea that Lynch had since 1973. The film Blue Velvet was set in a real town in Lumberton, North Carolina, and revolves around a college student, Jeffrey Beaumont, also Kyle McLaughlin, who finds a severed ear in a field. Investigating further with the help of his friend Sandy, Laura Dern, he discovers that it's related to a criminal gang led by a psychopath, Frank Booth, played by Dennis Hopper, who has kidnapped the husband and child of singer Dorothy Valens, Isabella Rossellini, uh, where he repeatedly rapes her. 
Lynch has called the story a dream of strange desires wrapped inside a mystery story. Lynch included pop songs from the 1960s in the film, including Roy Orbison's In Dreams and Bobby Vinton's Blue Velvet. This is the best recording of Bobby Vinton's Blue Velvet I have ever heard. It is so beautifully done, especially with the opening credits. It was like an early 1960s Technicolor film. Uh, the film is worth, I hate to say it like this, but the film is worth seeing just for the opening credits. If you don't see anything else of this film, watch the opening credits because they're just beautiful and the song's wonderful. Um, I, honestly, I don't know why they don't release it as a video for Blue Velvet because he plays the whole damn song. The, uh, the, uh, the song itself was uh, inspired the film. Lynch said it was the song that sparked the movie. There was something mysterious about it. It made me think about things. And the first things I thought about were lawns. Lawns and neighborhoods and other m- music in the film was composed by Angelo Badalamenti. I cannot say his name. It's the same guy that did the music for uh, Twin Peaks. Uh, he wrote the music for most of Lynch's subsequent work. Dino De Laurentiis loved the film and received support uh, for some of the early specialist screenings. Uh, but the preview screening to mainstream audiences were very negatively received, but most of the viewers hating the film. Lynch had found the success that the elephant man, but blue velvet's controversy with audiences and critics introduced him into the mainstream and became a huge critical and moderate commercial success. The film earned Lynch his second Academy award nomination for best director. Uh, Woody Allen, whose Hannah and her sisters were nominated for best picture said blue velvet was his favorite film of that year. In the late 80s, Lynch began work on television, uh, uh, directing a short piece, The Cowboy and the Frenchman, for French television in 1989. And it was around this time that he met with Mark Frost, and we've discussed that before when he did uh, the Twin Twin Peaks. Um, the movie that they were actually working on that fell through was a biopic about Marilyn Monroe uh, from Andy Summers' book, The Goddess, uh, The Secret Lives of Marilyn Monroe. And they went on to work on a comedy script, one saliva bubble, but that did not see completion either. That was the other movie they were working on. Yeah. It was called one saliva bubble. I'm sure they're going to change the name, but you know, but while talking at a coffee shop, Lynch and Frost had the idea of a corpse washing up on a lake shore and went to work on their third project initially called Northwest passage, but eventually being called twin peaks. Um, now during season one, Lynch directed two of the seven episodes but he was making Wild at Heart at the time. Mm-hmm. So he directed two episodes and went and made Wild at Heart, but he would come back to play Gordon Cole. <laughs> um, well, he wasn't in it that much. No, no. But if you notice, he was in it a lot for the second season. Yes. Because he, had, he, he was done shooting Wild at Heart. Um, he, uh, he was able to, to spend more time doing working on Twin Peaks. Um, he said... That directing the final episode, it ended with a cliffhanger like season one had later saying that's not the ending that people, but that that's not the ending that he want, but that's the ending that the people were stuck with. Mm-hmm. Um, but while Twin Peaks was in production, the Brooklyn Academy Music asked Lynch and Baldamenti, uh, who wrote the music to create a theatrical piece to be performed twice in the 1989 as part of the new music American festival. Um, so, yeah, he was busy. In the early 90s. Um, and Lynch ended up producing a 50-minute video for the performance. 
Um, he also worked with Issei Laurent, Calvin Klein, Giorgio Armani, and Japanese coffee company Nemoy, uh, which featured a Japanese man searching Twin Peaks for his missing wife. Now, while he was working on the first few episodes of Twin Peaks, his friend Monty Montgomery gave him a book that he wanted to d- direct as a movie. Um, he asked if it would maybe he could be an executive producer or something. And Lynch was like, that's great, Monty, but uh, what if I read and fall in love with it and want to direct it myself? And he said, uh, then you need to direct it yourself. That was kind of my idea. Um, and it's wild at heart. It's the story of Sailor and Lula about two lovers on a road trip. Lynch felt that it was just exactly the right thing at the right time. The book and the violence in America merged in his mind, and many different things happened with that story. With Gifford's support, Lynch adapted the novel into the movie, uh, a crime and road movie starring Nicolas Cage as Sailor and Laura Dern as Lula. Uh, describing his plot as a strange blend of road picture, love story, and psychological drama and violent comedy, Lynch altered much of the original novel, changing the ending and incorporating numerous references to The Wizard of Oz. Despite a muted response from American critics and viewers, Wild at Heart won the Palm Door at the 1990 Film Festival. Now, I will say this. I do not think Nicolas Cage is a good actor now. However, if you view his work before 1995, he was exceptional. Do you know he has a movie coming out where he's playing himself as a washed up actor? Yes. And I think that's hysterical. I can't wait to see it. I, you know, this film he's incredible in. Um, and it's him. It's not just because Laura Dern is really good. And mm-hmm. Laura Dern is really, really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, as yeah. well as Gina yeah. Rollins. Gina Rollins is great in this movie. Um, but it's him. Or it's that. It is. Face off. He no. is outstanding in face off. <sighs> oh, come on. Where he is. Be- I, I mean, he becomes John Travolta. Uh, okay. And- I'll, I'll give you face off. I will give you face off. I. I still think Travolta was better doing Cage. Oh, I agree. I agree. But, but I, I mean, Nick Cage was brilliant. Uh, he was. He was really, really good in that. He was great in Kiss of the Vampire. If mm-hmm. you've never seen that little that little gem, mm-hmm. he was great in Bringing Out the Dead. Oh, my God. That's such a beautiful movie. Raising Arizona. And, yeah, that's where I was going next. Raising H.I. McDonough is one of my favorite characters of all time. And we'll talk about those guys too. But I think I their career, they've done so much. Uh that's the Cohen brothers. Um, they've done so much. I'm gonna have to do at least two. And Will is telling me National Treasure is a great movie that he is in. Uh, that would be one of the examples I would point to on why he is now a bad actor. So after Wild at Heart and, and Twin Peaks uh, finished up, uh, Lynch went on to do um, Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me without Mark Frost. Because Mark Frost was at that point laying the groundwork for their next project. So Lynch direct Wild, or, um, Fire Walk with me. Um, and just to kind of bookend the, the series a little bit more. Just because he felt like it needed it. Um I love Firewalk Me. Uh, Mark Kermond, uh, the critic, said uh, it's Lynch's masterpiece. I wouldn't go that far, but I love Firewalk With Me. Um, 
Meanwhile, uh, Mark Lynch was, or uh, sorry, Mark Frost was laying the groundwork for the next project that he and Lynch did. It was called On the Air. It was a it was canceled after three episodes aired. Um, but they made I want to say nine episodes, uh, which all showed in Europe, but they didn't show here. You can see it now, but it is really really hard to find. It's basically kind of a surrealist surrealistic comedy about a TV studio in the 1950s, early 1960s. It's really great. Um, you get a bunch of great David Lynch people, uh, Jack Nance, of course. Um, but after that was canceled, uh, he and Monty Montgomery created a three episode HBO miniseries called hotel room in 1993 about events happening in one hotel room on different dates. Uh, I think there's one with a Japanese couple, that's the only episode I can remember off the top of my head. I've seen this several times, but it's it's real quick. I mean, each one is like 30 minutes. Uh, and in 1993, Lynch also collaborated with Japanese musician Yoshiki on the video for ex-Japan's song, uh, Longing Setsubo on Yoru. The video was never officially released, but Lynch claimed in his 2018 memoirs, Room to Dream, that some of the frames are so, are so fucking beautiful. Some of the frames are so fucking beautiful, you can't believe it. Because, you know, that's how I hear it in my head. After his unsuccessful TV ventures, Lynch returned to film. In 1987, he released the non-linear uh, Noir Risqué Lost Highway. Noir Risqué. Never heard that word before, but I kind of love it. Um, which was co-written by Barry Gifford and starred Bill Pullman and Patricia Arquette. Uh, the film failed commercially and received a mixed response from critics. I don't know why. I. It's a weird movie. That's it why. is a weird. It's fucking David Lynch. I know. I know. But I mean, sometimes his movies are just a little too weird. Like episode eight of the third series of oh, Twin Peaks. Oh gosh, yes. Breathe deep. Yeah. And drink deep and descend. Uh. Lynch then began uh, work on a film for a script uh, by uh, Mary Sweeney and John E. Roach, The Straight Story, based on the true story of Alvin Strait, played by Richard Farnsworth, an elderly man from Lawrence, Iowa, who goes on a 300-mile journey to visit his sick brother, Harry Dean Stanton, in Mount Zion, Wisconsin, by riding a riding lawnmower. Um, asked why he chose this script, Lynch said uh, that he f- that's what he fell in love with next. Um, and expresses admiration uh, for Mr. Strait, describing him as like James Dean, except that he's old. Baldamani wrote the music for the film, saying it was very different from the kind of score he'd done for Lynch in the past. Among the many differences from Lynch's other films, the Strait story contains no profanity, sexuality, or violence, and is rated G. Because it's just a sweet little story about this guy trying to go visit his brother, but he can't drive or get anybody to take him, so he hops on his riding lawnmower and Drives it 300 miles. Um, this came as, getting a G rating came as shocking news to many in the film industry that he's making a G rated film. Um, because it was like, it's David Lynch. How can he do that? Because that's the story he told. And a lot of people are like, well, you know, David Lynch can't work unless he works blue or violent. No, yeah, he can. I mean, Anybody who saw on the air, it's not blue, it's not violent, it's not sexual. It's about a TV station. Uh, Twin Peaks had a lot that was not blue or violent. I know. It was just weird. It was just a little strange, yeah. 
Um, that same year, Lynch approached ABC again with ideas for a television drama. The network gave Lynch the go-ahead to shoot a two-hour pilot for a series called Mulholland Drive, which he made a movie of. And now we're getting funny faces from Will. <laughs> now he's giving us a weird look. I don't think he realized he was making that face. Mm-hmm. Um, but they disputed over contents and runtime, so they shelved the project indefinitely. But he got $7 million from the French uh, film production company, Studio Canal. Uh, so he decided to make a movie. Uh, it's a nonlinear narrative, surrealistic tale of Hollywood's dark side. It stars Naomi Watts, Laura Harrison, and Justin Thoreau. Uh, it performed relatively well at the box office worldwide, earning Lynch Best Director of the 2001 Cannes Film Festival, shared with Joe Cohen uh, for The Man Who Wasn't There. And Best Director from the New York Film Critics Association. He also received his third Academy Award nomination for Best Director. And in 2016, the film was named the best film of the 21st century in a BBC poll of 177 film critics and 37 through 36 countries. With the rising popularity of the internet, Lynch decided to use it as a distribution channel, releasing several new series he created exclusively on his website, davidlynch.com. Uh, which went on December 10th, 2001. And in 2002, he created a series of online shorts, Dumbland, uh, intentionally crude in content and execution. The eight-episode series was later released on DVD. That same year, Lynch released a surrealistic sitcom called The Rabbits about a family of humanoid rabbits. If you have never seen this, you think you've seen the weirdest thing David Lynch has ever done? Watch Rabbits. Then you will actually see the weirdest thing David Lynch has ever done. Oh, Twin Peaks is pretty damn weird. <laughs> yeah, no, this, this, yeah, this blows it away. The eighth episode, it makes it look like Little Red Riding Hood. That's how weird wow. Rabbits is. Rabbits is just weird, and I love it. Um, the cameos in this were Naomi Watts and Laura Herring are the voices of Susie and Jane Rabbit, and a performance by Jeremy Irons. Uh, Lynch uh, has called Inland Empire the next film he did. Uh, a mystery about a woman in trouble. Uh, in effect, to promote it, he made appearances with a cow and a placard bearing the slogan, Without cheese, there would be no Inland Empire. Okay. <laughs> in 2009, Lynch produced a documentary web series directed by his son, Austin Lynch, and his friend, Jason S. Uh, interview project inter- interested in working with Werner Hot- Herzog in 2009. Lynch collaborated with um, Herzog on uh, his film, My Son, My Son, What Have You Done? Uh, with a non-standard narrative, the film is based on a true story of an actor who committed uh, matricide while acting in a production of the Orestia and starred David Lynch, um, regular Grace Zabriskie. Uh, in 2009, Lynch had plans to direct a documentary on Maharishi Mahesh Yogi consisting of interviews with people who knew him, but nothing came of that. In 2010, Lynch began making guest appearances on the Family Guy spinoff, The Cleveland Show, as Gus the Bartender. So, yeah, David Lynch is Gus the Bartender in The Cleveland Show. I didn't know Show. that. Yes. Yeah, so, again, that's his natural speaking voice. That's weird. I no, ne- if you look I at Gus, knew. it's like, oh, yeah, that's David Lynch. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to have to go back and look now. I, I, I did not put two and two together on that one. Yeah. Uh, he'd been convinced to appear in the show by its lead actor, Mike Henry, a fan of Lynch who felt the whole life had changed after seeing Wild at Heart. Uh, and uh, Lady Blue Shanghai is a 16-minute promotional film 
that was written, directed, and edited by Lynch for Dior was released on the internet in May 2010. Uh, Lynch directed, then directed a concert by new wave band Duran Duran on March 30, uh, 23rd, 2011. The concert was streamed live on YouTube from the Mayan Theater in Los Angeles as a kickoff to their second season of Unstaged, an original series for uh, American Express. The idea is to create a f- uh, on-the-fly layers of image uh, permeating Duran Duran on stage. Lynch said, uh, a world of experimentation and hopefully some happy accidents. Uh, the animated short, I Touch a Red Button Man, a collaboration between Lynch and the band Interpol, played in the background during Interpol's concert at the Coachella Valley Music and Arts Festival in April of 2011. The short, which features Interpol singing Lights, was later made available online. It is believed that Lynch was going to retire from the film industry, according to Abel Ferrara. Lynch doesn't even want to make films anymore. I've talked to him about it, uh, okay, but I can tell uh, that when he talks about it. But in June 2012, Los Angeles Times interview, Lynch said he lacked the inspiration to start a new movie project. Um, but if he got an idea that he fell in love with, he'd go ahead and do it. Um, he appeared in a three-part late show arc of the FX's uh, Louis as uh, Jack Dahl. And in November 2012, Lynch hinted at plans for a new film while attempting uh, uh, Plus Camerage in any town in Poland, which I can't pronounce. I'm even going to attempt it. <sighs> Saying something is coming up, it will happen, but I don't know exactly what. Uh, at Plus uh, camera, camera Image, Lynch received a Lifetime Achievement Award and keys to the city of said Poland city. Yes, said Poland city. The mayor Rafael Brisky, uh, in a January twenty third interview with the Los Angeles Times, uh, said that Lynch was really interested in some sort of project, but he wouldn't say what it was. Laura Dern confirmed that she and Lynch were planning a new project, and the New York Times later revealed that Lynch was working on a script uh, at Dot Idea Paris, a short documentary film about the lithographic process. Uh, it was released in February 2013, um, and he, um, so it was basically a short documentary. He also did a, a, a video for Nine Inch Nails' uh, song, Come, Come Back Haunted, and that was also released in 2013, which is how he hooked up with Trent Reznor. On October, in Atticus, and on October 6, 2014, Lynch confirmed via Twitter that he and Frost were starting shooting on a new nine-episode season of Twin Peaks in 2015, which is, we discussed that, but it took them two or three years to make it because mm-hmm. they were just going to do nine episodes, but it ended up being, I want to say 20. Was it that many episodes? 18 or 20. Um, I may have to go some of my older notes, but yes. Um, yeah, it was 18. I didn't remember it being that long. Yeah. Well, and it, well, you were thinking it was, it was two seasons. It was yeah. one season, but in two parts. That's that, That's it. That's it. Uh, he was asked again when he was doing Twin Peaks if he retired, and David Lynch is like, again, if something comes along and bites me, I'll do it, but I'm not chasing chasing that down. He was, he's happy doing painting right now. Mm-hmm. That's what he's doing. Um, there's a great little documentary interview on him where his newest child, who's like three, and oh my God, having a small child at 40 was tough. I couldn't imagine it in my 60s. Right. I just... I would just be exhausted. Well, look at Mick Jagger. Oh my God, he, he's in his seventies. Yeah, and the, he, he, I think they only had a child a few years ago. Yes. So yeah, go get I, the surgery, dude. <laughs> go get the surgery. Oh my God, exhausting. 
Uh, in the last episode of The Return aired, there's been speculation about a fourth season. Uh, Lynch, Lynch said that he is, he's up on doing it. So is Far- Frost. They just don't have it. They don't have anything on it yet. They're like, they don't want it. They don't want to repeat the same problem they had in the second season of the first time they did it, which was a weaker storyline than the first season. Right. They, they don't want to do that again. Right. Because, um, and again, Showtime's happy. Showtime, the numbers weren't as big as, as, as you would think, but the numbers were solid enough, like half a million views. Mm-hmm. Showtime was like, yeah, we can afford to do that. Let's do that. Whenever they want to do it, we will do another season of it. We're perfectly happy doing it the same way. Showtime is on board and ready whenever they're ready. So, but Frost and Lynch just, they don't have it right now. Now, Lynch is reported uh, to be working on a new project for Netflix under the working title Wisteria. Uh, Wisteria and Unrecorded Night. Uh, he's set to write and direct 13 episodes with an $85 million budget. Production was set to begin in May 2021 in Los Angeles. So he is doing another series for Netflix uh, titled Wisteria and Unrecorded Night. But that may not be the actual sure. title. Sure. You know? Which said his work of himself, that his work is far more similar to that of European filmmakers than American ones. And I would agree. I think of David Lynch when I think about Jean-Pierre Jeunet mm-hmm. or um, Claude Buñuel or um, Visconti or some of the other directors. Um, you know, um, but he also has, what's weird is he has a uniquely American voice. It is... Europeans would never make a character like Gordon Cole. They just wouldn't do it. You know, it wouldn't occur to them to to cast themselves in their own film as someone with a hearing problem who speaks truth to power. They just wouldn't do that, you know. Um, there are several themes that reoccur in De- uh, in Lynch's work. Uh, LeBlanc, LeBlanc and Odell write, he films are so panicked with motifs our recurrent characters, image, composition, and techniques that you will view his entire output as one large jigsaw puzzle of ideas. Um, delving into the self-subconscious uh, can be seen in Merrick's dream of his mother in the Elef- Elephant Man, uh, Cooper's dream in the Red Room and Twin Peaks, and the dreamlike logic of the narratives of Eraserhead, Mulholland Drive, and Inland Empire. Of his attitudes on dreams, Lynch said, waking dreams are one of the most important things that uh, that come to you while you're quietly sitting in, in a chair letting your mind wander. So there's a lot of daydreaming that he films in his stuff. Um, he also has a lot of uh, prominent themes of industry, um, the clunks and the, the, the piston power of machineries factories working you think about the opening of the original twin peaks where they show where they're sharpening the the saw blades he does that a lot um which also tends to feature his leading female actors in split roles where they'll be playing two different characters he likes to do that um his characters also uh frequently feature supernatural or omnipotent qualities um 
They can be seen as physical manifestations of various concepts such as hatred or fear. Examples include the man inside the planet in Eraserhead, Bob in Twin Peaks, the mystery man in Lost Highway, the bum in Mulholland Falls, and the phantom in Inland Empire. Lynch approaches his characters and plots in in a way that steeps them in a dream state rather than in reality. And that is basically all I have for David Lynch. That's cool. I know it was a lot, but <clears throat> Lynch Lynch fascinates me. Uh, and, and Lynch is a fascinating director. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, <clears throat> you really only have to watch Twin Peaks to really see just how fascinating he oh, is. Oh, my God, yeah. And, and also very weird. Yes. Um, I think that's one of the things I like about David Lynch and one of the things I don't like about <laughs> David Lynch because sometimes he's just a little too weird. Yeah, there are some scenes where, again, when I first watched Tw- Twin Peaks, I turned it on. And it was the scene with all of them sitting around a table, speaking with bread in their mouths, and this one kid yelling. And I'm like, well, that's too David Lynch for me. So I didn't watch Twin Peaks for years because of that. Yeah, so I I, I think he's worth a watch. I, I think it's funny. I was actually looking it up as we as you were talking, too, because you hadn't talked about it. And, and and all this time, I thought that Naked Lunch was David Lynch. It is not. And it's not. It is not. It would make sense, as weird as it is. Yes. I hate that movie. I love that movie. Um, you know, that's only like 10 pages out of that book, too, right? Yeah, yeah. And I just, it's funny that uh, t- uh, uh, naked, a, naked, a scene from Naked Lunch popped up on my TikTok this week. And I was like, <laughs> why? Bill, can you rub uh, some of this powder on my lips? fucking hate that movie. I really, really hate that movie with a passion. So, glad that's not David Lynch. So. No, it is not David Lynch. Anyway, awesome. Good stuff. Well, thank you, Good sir. Stuff. Well, with that then, we will step over to the murdery side of the house. Murder. For today, I got my information off all that's interesting. Uh, Distractify, Fox 59 News. Did you say Distractify? Distractify. I've been taking stuff off them before. <sighs> love Distractify. I love the name of that website. Uh, Fox 59 News, The New York Post, Your Tango, uh, Time Magazine, and WBIW. And this is the story of Lauren Spearer. Lauren Spearer. Uh, Indiana University sophomore Lauren Spear disappeared on June 3rd, 2011 after a night out with friends at a bar in Bloomington, and she hasn't been seen since. Uh, she was a 20-year-old sophomore, again, at Indiana University in Bloomington, and she disappeared in the early morning hours of June 3rd, 2011, again. And the disappearance of Lauren sent shockwaves across many college campuses in America. Authorities said the 20-year-old vanished after spending the early morning partying at a downtown bar in Bloomington. She was last seen walking alone outside a classmate's off-campus apartment around 4.30 a.m. It sparked a national manhunt, prompting several celebrities, including comedian Stephen Colbert and reality star Kim Kardashian, to spread awareness about the young woman's disappearance on social media. But over 10 years later, investigators have still been unable to locate her, and many tips have led to dead ends. It's a very difficult case from every angle, said private investigator Michael Ciravolo, who was hired by the Spear family in 2011. Among the many roadblocks that Ciravello and his team faced was a lack of cooperation from the local police department and a group of young men who Lauren spent most of her time with the day she disappeared. Ciravolo said private investigators are still following up on major leads as they have surfaced, but they have not found any significant progress. At this point, he said there's no sign indicating that Lauren is still alive. 
Still, the bleak prognosis doesn't change how much he and Lauren's parents want to know the truth of what happened to her. So it was the end of the semester, and Lauren, who was originally from Scarsdale, New York, uh, was at Bloomington majoring in textile merchandising. She went out for drinks with friends before eventually making her way home and then dropped off the face of the earth. There's surveillance footage from several buildings and streets that captured uh, Lauren around campus the night she vanished, but then she was just gone. Uh, Lauren Spear was 4 feet 11 inches tall. She weighed 90 to 95 pounds and had blonde hair and blue eyes. She's a little bitty. little tiny girl. She was last seen wearing black leggings and a white tank top with a white t-shirt over it. Uh, But despite such a detailed description for the authorities, no progress was ever made. Meanwhile, the national press covering the disappearance extensively, but despite a thorough uh, search, Lauren remains missing, and again, her case is unsolved. Over the last 10 years, Bloomington police have worked with FBI to scrutinize surveillance footage, conduct interviews with hundreds of people, and do land searches in a case that is still very active, uh, the police say. Though her family still holds out hope, many now fear the disappearance of Lauren Spear may never be solved. On the day she vanished, Lauren had a couple of friends over to watch a basketball game and drink some wine at her apartment. She had met some of her IU circle of friends years earlier at summer camp in Pennsylvania, including her boyfriend Jesse Wolf and friend Jason Rosenbaum. On the evening in question, however, Jesse was at his apartment when Lauren texted him that she was going to sleep after the game. At some point, she instead went to a party at Jason's townhouse two blocks away. She's seen on surveillance video leaving her apartment about 12.30 a.m., looking happy and well. And at the party, she met Jason's neighbors and friends, Corey Rossman and Michael Beth. In addition to more drinkings, there is official speculation that drugs like clonopin or cocaine were also consumed. Ah. After Jason's party, Lori, Lauren and Corey went to a nearby sports bar called Kilroy's at 1.46 a.m. They were only there for about a half hour. And Lauren also left her cell phone and shoes there. Her keys and purse would later be found in an alley. Surveillance video shows her friend Corey leaving the bar with Lauren and going to Smallwood Plaza apartments where Lauren lived. And in the hallway, they saw a group of young men that sources suggested were friends of Lauren's boyfriend, Jesse. One of the men punched Corey in the face, which he later erased, which he later claimed erased much of his memory of the night. After the incident, surveillance footage indicates they left Lauren's complex, and footage uh, also showed Corey carrying a new, a clearly intoxicated spear over his shoulder. They got to Corey's apartment, where his roommate Michael Beth said his inebriated friend Corey vomited and then went to bed. At 3.30 a.m., Michael said he phoned his neighbor Jason, asking him to take care of Lauren. Michael said Lauren continued to want to drink and asked Michael to drink with her at her apartment. Uh, Michael claimed that Lauren then went next door back to Jason's place. Corey told police that Lauren had such a large bruise under her eye that she allegedly sustained in a fall earlier that evening, but Lauren told Corey she couldn't remember how she got the bruise. According to Jason, where she went, he insisted that Lauren go to sleep on his couch, but she refused, saying she wasn't done partying yet and left. Uh, there were two calls placed from Lori's phone, Corey's phone just before Lauren left his apartment, but neither person picked up and no messages were left. According to his account, this makes Jason Rosenbaum the last known person to see Lauren Spear as she walked up the street towards her own apartment at 4.30 a.m. that morning, and it was reported she was last seen near the corner of 11th and College Avenue. Lauren was reported missing by Jesse uh, the following afternoon, 
since then, Bloomington Police, along with other law enforcement agencies, national search groups, and volunteers have searched numerous lakes and forested areas, as well as conducted countless interviews. In August of 2011, police conducted a nine-day search of the Sycamore Ridge landfill in Pimento, south of Terre Haute, for uh, clues in the disappearance, but nothing was ever found. From the beginning, Lauren's parents believed that the group of friends that Lauren was hanging out with that night knew more than they were telling police. All four men that hung out with her lawyered up real quick. Huh. Uh, Corey Rossman... Jay Rosenbaum, Mike Beth, and Jesse Wolf are all still considered persons of interest in Lawrence's disappearance, but they're not suspects. Even though Jesse Wolf said he was at home in the early hours of June 3rd, police can neither prove nor disprove his alibi. Remember, he was alone in his apartment. Yeah. And that was the boyfriend, right? That was the boyfriend, okay. Jesse. And she was out with some other dudes. She was out with a whole bunch of other dudes throughout the night. Um, had his friends that encountered Lori and Corey at her building contacted him about her being drunk in the company of another man. Mm-hmm. Uh, while all were cooperative with the investigation, some of their parents did not allow them to take police polygraphs. Jason and Jesse did submit DNA samples. Um, instead of the police polygraphs, uh, some took lawyer-appointed appo- third-party polygraphs, and Corey and Jesse claimed that they passed the independent test, but the results have never been made public. Well, polygraphs, like as we've discussed before, aren't accurate anyway. Sure, but I always found it weird they wouldn't take the police polygraphs, but they took independent third party. I guess maybe because of the pre- the the whole deal with polygraphs is in the first place is police are trying to pressure you into telling the truth and trying mm-hmm. to tell you how reliable the polygraphs are, yeah. where really it's a ruse. Yeah. So maybe just the pressure of not doing the police led polygraphs and doing their own independence. So, you know, maybe on May 23rd, 2013, Corey Rossman claims Lauren parents were harassing him about her daughter's disappearance and what happened on that night. According to a report in a New York paper, uh, Corey maintains he's done nothing wrong and no charges have ever been brought against him. On June 14th, 2011, police released photos and information about a white truck that could be connected to the case the mid-2000 model has a short bed and appears to be full of equipment, and a logo is visible on the side. Uh, but the owner of the truck came forward days later and is cleared. On June 26, 2013, Lauren's parents file a civil lawsuit against Corey Rossman, Jason Rosenbaum, and Michael Beth, as they were among the last people known to see Lauren the night of her disappearance. The lawsuit alleges they failed in their duty of care to Lauren, knowing that she was intoxicated and didn't do enough to help her. Mm-hmm. On October 1st, 2014, a federal judge dismisses the Spears family lawsuit. Uh, Attorneys for the defendant point the blame at Kilroy's sports bar in Bloomington. Uh, The Spear family did file an appeal, but federal uh, federal appeals court upheld the lower court's ruling. And in the ruling, a federal judge pointed a lack of evidence in showing the three men were responsible for her disappearance. Outside of theories that anyone Lauren Spear was with that night harmed her, there's always a chance that someone abducted her off the street. She was a 90-pound girl who was barefoot and intoxicated. She could be snatched off the feet off the street very quickly. Yeah. Uh, there was a sex offender and 2015 killer of another IU student, uh, Hannah Wilson, around in the area. Um, in 2015, the Bloomington police announced they were investigating a possible link between the two cases. Uh, Hannah went missing on April 24th, 2015, after visiting Kilroy's, 
and Hannah was last seen getting into a taxi in front of the bar and driving away. Her body was found the next morning in rural Brown County. Daniel Messel was arrested for the murder after his cell phone was discovered near the body. Uh, Police later dismissed the case as having any similarities to Lawrence. Furthermore, any other friend or acquaintance that may have picked up Spear as she was walking home. So, could have been, could have been any. Could have been anybody. Could have been. Another popular theory is accidental overdose, taking a large amount of alcohol and perhaps drugs on top of Lauren's heart condition and or medication may have caused her death. So she did have a heart condition. Oh. And yeah. And so. And she's drinking like a fish. And possibly having cocaine. And what was the other thing? Clozapin? Uh, Kalonapin. Kalonapin? Yep. Yeah. So. Yeah. That's really things you shouldn't be mixing with booze anyway. Especially well, with a heart condition. Well, and according to ABC News... And she's less than 100 pounds. Yeah. Well, according to ABC News, Lauren had been arrested for public intoxication a few months before her disappearance, and at the time, police found cocaine in her room. Wow. One of the most promising leads came in... Um, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, backing up real quick. It... It's possible one of the theories that she died at someone else's apartment and panic may have set in, uh, causing an intoxicated college student to panic and and, and hide, hide the body. Of the body. Hide the body. Right. Yeah. Um, one of the most promising leads came in January 2016 when investigators from Bloomington and federal agents uh, searched a property in connection with the Lauren investigation. Investigators searched the property with cadaver dogs, uh, which indicated potential evidence. Anthropologists conducted a dirt uh, a dig and sifted dirt from the barn where the cadaver dogs hit, but found nothing. Uh, but no arrests have been made, and police have never commented on these findings. Okay. Whatever occurred that night, no one any no one is telling anything, even after ten years. Mm-hmm. Uh, armchair detectives and media reports throughout the years have speculated on a wide variety of theories and suspects, ranging from abduction by a motorcycle gang to a drug overdose cover up, and the people she was partying with dumped her body in the Ohio River. Many believe this is what has happened because Lauren suffered from a serious heart condition, and with the drugs of alcohol, it could have been de- could have become a deadly outcome. The FBI has assisted the Bloomington Police Department in the search for the missing Lauren, but to this date, public and private law enforcement continues to hit dead ends with the case. Uh, Perhaps it was a terrible accident that happened and we can deal with that, said Lauren Spears' mother, Charlene, at a press conference. What we can't deal with is what we don't know. On June 3rd, 2021, on Facebook, she wrote, quote, Ten years ago today, in the early hours of June 3rd, 2011, Lauren became a missing person. What started as an evening with friends ended tragically for Lauren and our family. There is no video evidence proving Lauren ever turned the corner at 11th and College Avenue around 4.30 a.m. There has never been any suspect named. Despite the amount of time that has passed, Bloomington police are not calling Lauren's disappearance a cold case. Uh, Chief Michael Dekoff, um, we're going to go with that. An unnamed town in Poland? (laughs) Said, quote, many times we're asked if Lauren's case is cold, and our answer is an unequivocal no. A cold case is a case where no information or leads have come in and the case file sits dormant. That has never been the case regarding Lauren, and there's always been something to follow up on. This is an interesting thing. There's a TikTok video which has gone viral, which alleges that a a woman resembling Lauren is involved in an online gambling game and accuses the game of being a front for human trafficking. Oh, someone snatched her up off the street and trafficked her. Maybe. Because in the video, 
There's a woman shown wearing a face mask, and when put side by side with a picture of Lauren before she disappeared, I can see where the resemblance is. Okay. Um, Lauren's family believes it doesn't have anything to do with Lauren, but it has been forwarded to authorities who are aware of the video as well. In the video, a TikToker who goes by the handle TY the Crazy Guy, or at TY the Crazy Guy, uh, describes a theory that an online casino rubet is holding women hostage and forcing them to work as dealers. He explains, quote, it's basically a virtual casino where you can bet money on these card games from your computer and the dealers who are mostly women play where you live. Many people believe that they're being overworked, drugged or something in between. The video also contains a clip of another female dealer appearing to pass out while at the tables. Men come along and drag the woman out on on her chair, raising suspicions that these women are tied to their chairs and being forced to work. Uh, Rubet is not available in the U.S., and and the exact location of the casino is is not clear. However... The company is registered in Curacao, where, according to their privacy policy, I remember Amy Lynn Bradley disappeared there. In Curacao, yeah. Yep. Uh, Lauren's parents, Rob and Charlene Spear, are hoping that uh, that one piece of information will bring their nightmare to a close. They continue to keep their daughter in the public eye through various social media posts and media appearances, hoping someone somewhere will lead them to their daughter and those responsible for her disappearance. Charlene said there isn't anything new in her daughter's case, which is beyond frustrating. And Charlene is hoping that their prayers will be answered. She said, quote, remember, nothing ever truly disappears. Lauren didn't vanish while hanging out with her friends on the weekend in college. People don't just disappear and neither did she. Someone or someones know what happened and the truth will come out. We have never stopped believing that. Again, to, to reiterate, Lauren Spear was four feet, 11 inches tall. She weighed 90 to 95 pounds and had blonde hair and blue eyes. She was last seen wearing black leggings and a white tank top with a white shirt over it. Anyone with information at all can send tips anonymously to Find Lauren, which is P.O. Box 1226, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. The Bloomington Police Department at 812-339-4477. Email helpfindlauren at gmail.com. Or Bo Deedle and Associates Private Investigator Michael Ciravolo at Mike at Investigations.com or call 212-557-3334. If you see something, say, say something. something. And that is the story of the disappearance of Lauren Spear. Well, thank you, sir. So that's that's an important story to get out there since there's been no cracks in the case. Um, they've, you know, she's never been found. Her body yeah. hasn't been found. There's been nothing. She literally disappeared into thin air. So, you know, that's, that's one of those stories that's important to keep going and keep going. I know that other people have covered this before, but I think it was important for, uh, for us to put that out for our listeners as well. Because exactly. you never know yeah. when that one person is going to have that one piece of information that's going to break this wide open. That's true. So, and if we can help, let's do it. Absolutely. So with that, that's the end of another one of our recording weeks. Um, as a reminder, uh, you can find our information on nerderymurdery.com. You can find our email addresses as well as the, uh, the links to our social media. You can find our merchandise store where if you wish to get your Nerdery Murdery fandom uh, T-shirts or hats or cups or mouse pads, you can check all of our inf- information out there. 
You can also find the link to our Patreon, where if you wish to donate to our show to help keep it going, uh, you can go there. And with our patron, you do get uh, exclusive uh, episodes as well as our shows two weeks early. So do check that out as we have uh, s- several exclusives out now as this episode comes out. Please and thank you. Please and thank you. And then as a final reminder, if you can, please uh, leave a review uh, on iTunes, uh, leave a, a rating and a review. It really helps us. It really helps other people find our content. So or or if, uh, a rating at Spotify as well. Uh, yes, you can do them at Spotify now as well. So just remember, if you're enjoying this content, please take a minute to go out to iTunes or Spotify, anywhere you can leave a rating and and do so. We very much appreciate that. Takes less than a minute. So that, again, that's the end of our recording week. And with that, I have been Zig with your nerdery. And I'm Jeffrey with your murdering. Cue the music. Music.